This week's guest on Swadeshi Videshi is someone who is described by one article as the Virat Kohli of Carnatic music. An accomplished musician whose students are spread all across the globe, the past few years have been what I would describe as a seamless transition from a musician to an activist and and an intellectual who has been brainstorming how to democratize how art is performed and especially how it affects people. This, of course, has come with its own pushback. I'm super thrilled to discuss all of this with my guest today, T.M. Krishna. Sir, it's a pleasure to have you. Pleasure to be here. Thank you very much. So I want to start off uh, really quickly by uh, telling you a bit about my background, which has nothing to do with Carnatic music. And mm-hmm. I have a very limited understanding of it, but I think that reflects uh, significantly on the barriers and the boundaries that you're crossing as well. Uh, to someone with very limited uh, standing of Carnatic music is, is, is following you, not necessarily for your music, but what you're doing with it. And th- this week, uh, I want to kind of talk to you about that. So first of all, you know, how, how did it all start? And, and I'm not saying about music. When you stopped performing as much as you did and got into this activism realm, discussion about how music is performed, who it's performed by, and who it's affecting. Yeah. So um, I think, it, first of all, it all does begin with music as far as I'm concerned, mm-hmm. because um, primarily I'm a singer. So my life from the age of what, six has been learning Carnatic music, performing from the age of 12. I did what a lot of people do, learned music, performed concerts, traveled, uh, I mean, did the thing that we do. Mm-hmm. And um, I think it was a through a period of time and I'd, I'd become popular and I was, I'd, I'd had the fan following and all that was quite well in place, so to say. And um, it was not a moment of epiphany of any sort. It was not this revelation of one morning or anything. I think it, it all began for me with a simple question to myself, uh, which was, uh, what is this music and why am I singing it? Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, all these things you must understand is is uh, trying to understand my own journey post facto. So during the process, you're not really thinking about where did this all come from? Why are you, why are you having these ideas? You just go with the flows. Mm-hmm. So um, I think after a point, I started researching the music. The research was very musicological. I was looking at the history of the music, history of ragas, um, what did the treatises say, what was tradition, what's the idea of tradition, all these various questions which were very internal to the process of Carnatic music making was what I was initially diving into. But fascinatingly, that, you know, and most people think this is kind of dry, you know, academic work, but it, it was not dry and academic work for me. It was very musical and very, very oral about uh, actual singing, actual sound. And it raises very interesting questions if you look at it. For example, what is beauty? What is, is there a continuity to the idea of beauty? Who defines that idea of beauty? Uh, is it only the holding community of an art form? So then the question expands and says, who is the holding community? Why are they the holding community? Where are the rest? Why are the rest not part of this aesthetic construction? At that point, the conversation for me was just about Carnatic music. So about why is the rest of society not involved in this aesthetic body? Uh, who has been removed from this aesthetic body? So you'll find a musicological question is a philosophical question. It's a political question. It's a sociological question. And for me, 
that's how the whole process expanded. And then it doesn't limit yourself just to the high, high horse of the classical. And that's a word I've completely disowned. I think it's an artificial construction, classical and folk. Mm-hmm. Uh, they are not aesthetic constructions, but for understanding, it's still convenient to use, and that's why I'm using it. So this is not just about a point about Carnatic. It's about those art forms that are not considered classical, those art forms that are part of communities that are marginalized. Mm-hmm. Those. Um, so where is the discourse in society among different art forms, which means where is the conversation between people of different different backgrounds and cultural understandings? Um, where are these marginalizations coming from? Where are these ideas of sophistry, complexity, uh, you know, evolution? Something is considered raw and crass, where something else is considered very evolved and fine. So where are all these things coming? So I think a simple research into a raga can result in many fascinating questions. Mm-hmm. Now, you speak a lot about the music uh, to someone uh, that has a very novice eye towards this. Uh, it seems that the people in the community also have a large part to play in these issues that you're describing. You're talking about Carnatic music itself, right? Yes, Carnatic music and, and, and especially Carnatic musicians and those, you know, uh, listen to it and, and, and are within that community. Okay, uh, I'm not going to give you a historical... Uh, no, no, of course not, of course not. <laughs> ...research doc on that. But the point is, Carnatic music today, mm-hmm. um, at least for the last uh, 100 years, has been practiced, patronized, mm-hmm. and listened to by a Brahmin community mm-hmm. in South Indian Brahmin community. Mm-hmm. Um, the practitioners are from the same uh, group, and for those who don't understand Brahmin, it's a caste. I'm just, just trying to be more uh, clear. Right. It's, an, it's the upper caste community, but within the upper caste, it's more the Brahmin. Mm-hmm. And I would expand and say the Brahmanical, mm-hmm. which is more an ideational, sociological idea. Mm-hmm. The Brahmanical community who are interested and who have, who have been part of this community, and therefore it's very closely held. Mm-hmm. It's tightly held. Um, membership is not easy. Uh, uh, it's it's very similar to um, what I would call Western classical music, which is so white. Mm-hmm. It's not not very different from the similar kind of construction. Right. So um, similarly, this is very upper caste and Brahminical, mm-hmm. and this is the community that practices, enjoys. So in a way, the music reiterates the community, and the community reiterate the music. Now, one quick uh, reflection on the Western music and the comparison to it, because again, uh, we do have a largely diaspora audience. Um, when there is a hegemony on Western music, the classical forms that it does, um, you obviously saw the birth of jazz and, and these other art forms uh, mm-hmm. that existed through the minorities. Are we mm-hmm. seeing that birth uh, in, in from minority communities within India? Well, first of all, there are already multiple art forms that are practiced by so many minority communities and marginalized communities, mm-hmm. uh, which uh, already exist, um, which are already there and which are already uh, practiced. So they already exist. Mm-hmm. But the question that needs to be asked is, are these art forms given, shall we say, the same status or respectability that, say, the Carnatic is given? Then the answer is obviously no, it is not. Mm-hmm. Um, the, the Karnatic and the Hindustani, the two premier uh, elite art forms of the country, are given um, you know prime status. Even film music, for example, which is extremely popular, mm-hmm. is still not respected as much 
as Indian classical music is, and that says something. Right. But so therefore, um, yes, there are multiple art forms. I think there are multiple uh, movements that happen in alternative music, in what you could call indie music, which are all come from different other communities, people from different backgrounds too, and also people from the Brahmin background, no doubt. But these are all um, happening parallelly. But the truth is, it is still the classical Karnatic or the classical Hindustani that reign uh, the intellectual appetiteness mm-hmm. of Indian music. Now, uh, it kind of broadly speaking and, and moving out of just the Karnatic music world, um, is your activism. Uh, obviously, I, you know, I went through all um, many of your articles. There's this transition that I see as an outsider of you, especially post, I wouldn't, I wouldn't give it a date, but now in, in the current socio-political climate, we, we generally do it post-2014. Um, and I see, you know, I've, I, I looked at your author's page and I see a transition of you, uh, really being political, not in terms of, you know, uh, this back and forthness, but those stigmatizations, those, those issues that, that you're talking about has, has exponentially increased. Why so? Oh, that's absolutely true. Um, I mean, I, this discourse as far as music and culture and and class and caste and gender is concerned began before 2014, mm-hmm. not before. Right. But I think 2014 um, elections of India mm-hmm. uh, is, uh, for me, uh, was a very sad day, to be very blunt, uh-huh. uh, because I think um, that marked a visible shift in the nature, or at least it presented to us, obviously, that there had been a visible shift in the nature and texture and the way we people, Indians, saw each other. Mm-hmm. And I think it revealed itself so loudly and so visibly uh, that it had to affect people who were interested in, a, in, a, in an India where um, culture was truly a celebration of each other. Um, Culture was truly a way of seeing each other as beautiful people for who we are. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Uh, And I think all that started shifting from 2014 under the present Narendra Modi government. And I think the shift is obvious to see. I mean, anybody who's been watching India will see it. Mm -hmm. And therefore, you know, and it's interesting that my discourse was a critique of a very similar thing that the BJP is trying to propagate in this country, mm-hmm. which is a very upper caste notion of India, a very mm-hmm. upper caste notion of Hinduism itself, mm-hmm. and a bulldozing of every other identities within the Hindu identity and beyond the beyond the Hindu identity, whether it's especially the people of the Islamic faith. Mm-hmm. Uh, and in a way, it, it is an extension of, of the battle that I had that I had started for myself mm-hmm. uh, about what is happening with culture and art. And 2014 automatically meant that the importance of this discourse uh, was more, became, became much larger and greater, that we need to talk about multiple cultures. Mm-hmm. We need to talk about multiple identities. We need to demolish ivory towers. Mm-hmm. We need to question the idea that the Hindu even within the Hindu, that the idea of the upper caste Hindu was Hindu, and the rest have to some way become like that. 
mm-hmm. and people who are beyond the Hindu fold have to accept their Hinduness in some very, a very, in my opinion, a very, very vulgar idea. But um, all this brought together the fact that urging me that this discourse becomes so much more important. And repress and being part of a musical form that ideally mm-hmm. will become one of the flagships of propagating this very, very uh, violent idea of India. Mm-hmm. Because Hindustani music will fit the bill perfectly. <laughs> right. Yeah. And Hindustani music will fit. We fit the bill. I would fit the bill. I mean, if I was not speaking all this to you, I would fit the bill. Mm-hmm. And therefore, the necessity that this had to be directly directly confronted, I think, was the reason why you heard um, this discourse became louder and uh, my political stances became more obvious. Now, there's just one point that I want to reflect on that you said, BJP's propagation of a, of a Hindu, upper caste Hindu uh, demographic. Uh, what I don't understand is, is uh, sadly, wherever I've seen, whether it's in India or outside of India, there's a huge dividend between, uh, you know, the North Indian upper caste Hindus or in general North India and the South Indian as well. You reflected on an article talking about that you're accepted in North India as well as South India, primarily because of obviously uh, the way you look, the way you talk, uh, etc. <laughs> how is the BJP or how is this very right wing sentiment making inroads that promotes a very, uh, you know, fractional part of India rather than the, the, the community that it's surrounded by? To put it very simply and bluntly, mm-hmm. most of the Carnatic community and most of the, the classical music community mm-hmm. are behind the BJP. This is the truth okay. in South India. Mm-hmm. So the Brahminical community um, are quite happy with this idea of India. They're quite happy that this idea of the Brahminical notion of ritual, right, uh, belief, faith, prayer is the idea of the Hindu. And therefore, they're celib- they also celebrating the fact that we have such a government. And, you know, what is what has been stunning is that um, I think it's also a failure of uh, the, the liberal conversation here mm-hmm. is that that the present dispensation and its uh, various tentacles have convinced upper caste India. They've convinced upper caste India that for the last 60 years, somehow their belief system was oppressed or they were oppressed. Mm -hmm. They convinced upper caste India that Hindus were not given importance and their faith was some way challenged. This is so much utter rubbish. (laughs) But the fact is, when this feeling is already embedded in somebody, logic and facts are not going to change it. The question we need to ask is, how did we allow that feeling to be inserted? And how come people are convinced? These are very normal people like you and me, but they're convinced about this. And it's an emotional thing. So I think that is where the the liberal Indian and the liberal political community have failed. Mm -hmm. That they've allowed middle and upper middle class Hindu upper caste India to, in a way, be drawn into this false notion of fear to, to their identity. And I think that's what we are struggling with today because we see this in social media. Mm-hmm. Whether it is a, um, a Brahmin from South India uh, or the Brahmin from uh, UP, mm-hmm. 
they feel very similar. And I think the situation is even worse with non-resident Indian upper caste. Mm -hmm. No, well, uh, I can't wait to get into the NRI stuff, and, and I'm saving sorry. that for the last. No, no, no. I, <laughs> but uh, just a few more local questions, and, and specifically uh, is when you say the liberal uh, order and the liberal elite, especially of India, uh, what you said in your terms as well, the ivory tower that they exist in, has that been also a failure? Not just letting, you know, that anger come through, but trying to dispense that information that we believe in, this idea of equality, uh, equity, etc. Them not being able to transcend the, you know, the Ivy League somewhat, the ivory tower barriers to the common folk. Yeah, I think there is intellectual arrogance of the liberal that we can't <laughs> It's, 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 it's absolutely true. And I think the, the, the intellectual liberal is also intolerant mm -hmm. to a large extent to different shades of belief and faith. The whole idea, the other very important aspect is the idea of religious faith and belief. I think it's a very important part of social discourse. Whether you believe in a God or not, is irrelevant to the power of belief. Mm -hmm. And therefore, I think a lot of times, the liberal has blurred being liberal to the idea of being atheistic mm. or being agnostic. And that's deeply problematic. I think that um, this has also led to the idea that the liberal or the, or the very open person is irreverent mm -hmm. to, the, to the person who is deeply entrenched in religious faith. This is also a problem in the liberal discourse. That you cannot create that division. I think the liberal discourse can also be a religious discourse. In fact, I say should be a religious discourse. Let me put it that way. Mm -hmm. Because we need the idea of the liberal to be part of religious habit. Mm -hmm. Always just habit after a point of time. It's reflex and habit. You're not you're not thinking over many things that you do, whether you do it as an agnostic, atheistic, or a theist. It's habit. Where where have we created a liberal religious habit? Have we created religious habits which are liberal? We have talked about syncretic culture. We say that oh, uh, you know, we've been a syncretic culture. But how much have we consciously made an effort to celebrate it, make it obvious, and communicate that? in such a fashion that it becomes second nature. What have we done for that? The answer is zilch. Mm -hmm. What has happened has happened by itself within communities. We have not learned from it and we have not highlighted these things enough. And therefore, there is a failure from the liberal side without doubt. And there is definitely, I think, a level of intolerance. Mm -hmm. I know this word a liberal would hate to hear, especially <laughs> when he or she is being accused of that. But I think there has been intolerance to faith. There's been intolerance to ritualism. There's been intolerance to all those habits that people have. What we should have done is we should have rediscovered ritual. We should have reinvented uh, religious processes. We could have created, I mean, created forms of prayer that and propagated forms of prayer that made religions automatically symbiotic to each other. Mm -hmm.
when, when, for example, uh, this liberal elite does try to push back on those notions, uh, when this liberal elite tries to argue and kind of, you know, what you were saying is change up the discourse, uh, they get the they get a pushback, a very strong pushback, and no one else can speak better on that than you yourself with uh, the MS uh, controversy that you said. Now, I I looked at your statements, and again, as a liberal elite who has studied uh, outside of India, um, I found nothing wrong with that. But then all these, you know, the reactions, the the commentary that came afterwards was very strong and very very forceful. That is an example of when you try to change up the discourse, when you're thinking about restructuring uh, these ideas, these notions that have been passed down to us, you get so much of a pushback. I mean, the first point is to understand that pushback. Mm -hmm. I mean, let me put it this way. 15 years ago, if I had read and um, if I had heard a speech like my own speech, mm -hmm. which raised the alarm bells, how would I have reacted? And the honest truth is, I, I mean, I would not have been as violent <laughs> as people have deemed towards me on that on that speech. But I, some way, know where that pushback is coming from. I understand it, and therefore, um, I'm able to understand. I, I don't. I think the articulation is extremely superficial and does not have depth. Yes, but I understand why it is coming and where it is coming. You just deal with it. Mm -hmm. You just have to deal with it. You must also understand that. Uh, in today's context, the pushback will be much more because of the political environment of the country. Right. And yeah. because you allow the political environment to get where it is today, the pushback is so amplified. And therefore, you need to just understand that. But I think we're, under, we're also paying too much attention to the noise. That's what I think. I think there is, there is a lot behind, a lot beyond the noise that you see on social media or around the place. But there are people still thinking about these things. And I honestly feel, and I'm an, I'm, maybe I'm just an optimist, but it's good to be there. Um, I think that the next generation is, is different. They may not agree with me. They may still disagree with me. But I think they are different. I think, I think their environment is different. They may be seeing all this noise going around. But I think that they're listening too. So when you try to change the discourse, you must remember there are many people listening who may not talk to you about it, who may not respond to it. And therefore, it's essential that you keep pushing. Now, imagine if you don't put that discourse out, then only one voice is going to be heard. You're never going to hear about the struggles of this Devadasi woman. Mm -hmm. You're never going to hear about the issues of the identity of the Devadasi. You're never going to hear about how it's so problematic um, to not discuss the transformation of this great personality. Are we willing to just let the hagiography go on? Let the uh, sanitization go on? No, we cannot. Therefore, irrespective of the pushback, we have to keep, we have to tell, tell these stories out there. We have to tell them loudly. And I think there are people listening. I, I would agree with that. People like me are listening to you, sir. Uh, <laughs> I want to transition uh, to something that I'm uh, much more reflective about that I've seen is the diaspora. Um, as you know, this show is obviously based for the diaspora. And one thing is evidently clear is that while there might not be a true in-depth analysis of what's occurring uh, back home within India, within the diaspora communities, there is a lot of interest, uh, whether that ranges from, you know, the Carnatic music 
community or this uh, community of very involved in the political scenario. Um, the reflection by, again, uh, a majority liberal crowd is the diaspora that's primarily right-wing or to conceived to be right-wing. How do you, as what I would say and what I would term, and this is my own terminology, a very liberal uh, musician uh, interacting with this right-wing diaspora? Well, it's, it, honestly, it's been hard. Let's be um, uh, very straight about that. Um, I think, see, there's a certain demography of people who migrated abroad mm -hmm. and um, who had the access, who had the ability uh, to leave the country and uh, make their life in another land. And I think that is uh, what you're seeing in terms of the support that the right wing or anybody, say, just say right of center, you know, okay. may not be completely right wing right. also. Uh, and you see that um, a lot of the discourse that is coming through is coming from people of uh, definite cultural privilege, at least, mm -hmm. no doubt about it. These are people from social and cultural privilege, and a lot of the people who left the country are from that that background. Mm -hmm. So mm -hmm. it, it, is, it has been very, uh, personally for me, I've, I've found it very hard uh, many times to have conversations uh, with a lot of this community because, um, see, like any uh, community that's <clears throat> transplanted to a different country where culturally they don't belong, I think what they have done is they've built their own identities of culture and most of the times that's linked to religious belief, to ritual, to festival, etc., etc. Or even Carnatic music. Um, that, Sorry? Or even Carnatic music as well. Oh, Carnatic music, exactly. Like Vedic classes, Carnatic music, Bharatanatyam classes, all the same, right? Right, right. So it's, it's all part of the same same thing. And, you know, and therefore, and I'm not judging that at all. I'm just mm -hmm. saying that's, that's a, in a way, it's a very normal thing, right? Mm -hmm. So what you what they would have done at their household in India, they're doing in their houses abroad, pretty much that, right? Mm -hmm. So what has happened is um, they are very much... Uh, in sync with uh, what our present government is displaying as Indianness and Hinduness and, and ritual. And so conversations have been, have been difficult. Uh, I think it's, in fact, I can tell you, it's probably, I found it much easier to have conversations with people with very heavy right-leaning in India rather <laughs> than people with heavy right-leaning outside India. Right. Uh, it's much harder to have conversations with them. Um, and it's and, and it's fascinating the kind of uh, stories they'll come up with, <laughs> and I mean it's, it, it's another thing that always fascinates me is how cast blind many of these people are. It's right. so shocking. Um, it's it's very interesting that they would be happy to discuss the African American issue <laughs> and talk about the struggles of the African American and talk about affirmative action, but then you talk about reservation and the Dalits in India, and then suddenly they don't realize that it's the same story. And then suddenly it becomes about how they didn't get admission in that college because the cutoff was 97%, and that's the only understanding of caste that they have. Mm -hmm. um, so it is, it is at an objective level fascinating, at, um, at a level of discussion and attempting some movement, frustrating <laughs> and i think there is an age um, factor here too right um i think that the younger people in fact i think that the people who were 
born Indians born in of Indian origin born say in the US or UK or somewhere mm-hmm. somewhere mm-hmm. I think they in fact have a better understanding I want to say that here really yeah it's very interesting mm-hmm. yeah because uh, they, I, I think that um, I think they have they're, they're totally oblivious to these issues mm-hmm. initially no doubt about it mm-hmm. but I think once the conversation happens mm-hmm. I think they are able to understand the issue better than the person who has moved from here in a very odd way i think that's primarily because of um their exposure to the larger communities in the other countries mm-hmm. to diverse people from different cultural and ethnic backgrounds maybe all these things have helped them but i think that because i have received some wonderful letters and emails from many what you would call american born uh americans of indian origin and we, we call them abcds american born yeah, confused ABCDs, ABCDs. exactly so <laughs> they, in fact they've been wonderful i mean and the discussions have been great so i think yeah um, i do agree that there is and i do think there's a lot of support too i'm not saying that there isn't mm-hmm. but i'm just saying that the, um it is uh, the large support that this very extreme notion of india that is being propagated gets from non resident indians is uh, very troublesome sometimes Do you think the atmosphere allows for that discourse to take place which makes, you know, these uh American-born Indians more reflective about these cleavages in society whereas, you know, the people that were born and raised here uh in India uh with a certain, you know, class structure, they were never uh not not just being accustomed to it, but not even in that environment, that discourse environment that you were previously talking about. that is easier to take place within the I, I think you're spot on on that one i think that uh, you know um the fact that in countries like america um you know the environment for for uh, dissent for discussion for disagreement uh, for conversation is definitely conducive and wonderful and that i think has a huge role to play in the way um, the younger generation uh people are able to at least think about these things once it's brought to their notice that's the whole thing you know they may not even realize it for most of their teenage life or even later but once it comes to they see when they come to india who do they see they'll come and see their uncles and aunts and and, and the same same people mm-hmm. they go back to the us they they have two lives one life is their family and friends which are the same kind of people mm-hmm. okay and then they go to school and there they see a totally different world right uh who are the friends who come to their homes mostly people of indian origins mm-hmm. mostly people of upper caste back- backgrounds mm-hmm. um i've traveled to the us and for multiple times in for, for decades and i can tell you i've rarely met an indian brahmin family that has had african american friends walk into their home right right usually if there were such people there'll be people of work so there is a certain contractualness about work friendship i think which is slightly different from just having friends you know what i mean mm-hmm. um i've seen that very rarely so i think that when they they live two lives these children so they when they go to school they have very different uh friends and these are the friends who come younger people so even the adults exposure to different cultures when they are in our eyes is through their children and children's friends and children's friends parents during birthday parties for example mm-hmm. you know so um i think that it is definitely the environment in countries like uk or or the us where it is condu- conducive to have these conversations uh, many of our households um questioning is not 
the structure is so uh, defined, whether it is articulated or not, mm -hmm. that it's very difficult to have these kind of conversations. I mean, I grew up in a very different home, but in most homes, I can see that. What can this newer generation uh, diaspora crowd who, again, as you say, has a very, uh, very juxtaposed lifestyle in terms of they see something else within their home and then outside of their home. How are we going to change that? If at all, are we going to change that? Change what? I just want clarity. Change what? Uh, change this discourse. Yeah, I mean, I think it's it's very important that the um, that the younger generation of people interested in this art form, irrespective of whether they've learned it or they perform it, mm -hmm. I think it's important that uh, they realize... Uh, first, a complete realization of entitlement, um, and I think they may. You know, I think they need to have these conversations with their parents. I think it's very important that they have these conversations there with their parents. But what if that's and closed I, off? Sorry. What if that avenue is closed off? Well, in, yeah. If that's closed mm -hmm. off, then it's a tragedy. I agree. Then, mm -hmm. then it has. Then I, I think. I think. And the second point is, mm -hmm. among mm -hmm. their own generation, I think there has to be an active active conversation about it i think it has to be active it has to be mm -hmm. uh, full mm -hmm. of life it has to be also look at what can you what can they do they may not be able to do much in 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 their in the country that they're living in i agree mm -hmm. but i think if they if they can raise this discourse among the generation of people then i think even when they come to india they will see india differently i think it's important that they they start seeing india itself differently mm -hmm. that does not happen when these people come to india they even even take art. Let's not even go beyond art. What they have to come to this country and go go and listen and experience art that is beyond the framework of the upper caste. They have to go meet and see in India that they that they're not going to only see through their windows and the cars. Mm -hmm. You know, I think that's an important step that they can take for understanding what India is and understanding what marginalization is. It's not on YouTube, it's not on Facebook, it's not on Twitter. It's on the ground. Mm -hmm. So it's at one point, I think, if they can't have conversations with their parents or with their family, among peer groups, I think they need to, they need to organize conversations. I think this, there has to be a certain formality to which, which way these discourses are taken. And they need to change their experience of who they are. A fundamental realization uh, is to be uh, is to be constantly aware of who you are, and mm -hmm. if that has to change, then you have to change your experiences of yourself, and that happens if you change space, if you change people, if you change uh, art, if you change all that, then you start seeing a different side of your identity. You see, you see the smallness of that identity, you'll also see the largeness and, and the beauty of the multiple identities you missed. And let me stress here, this is not about volunteering in a hospital. <laughs> I want to say that clearly. Mm -hmm. This is not about going for one summer and making sure your resume is padded. Mm -hmm. This is not that. Right. That You do that, I don't care. I care two hoots about that. <laughs> but this is about actually spending time with the larger idea of India. This is about walking into the mosques of the country, walking into the churches of this country, walking into the bylanes, walking into the, into the villages, walking into the fisherfolk uh, uh, villages, and seeing what 
you know, just spend time. You don't need to do anything. You don't need a certificate. Right. No. And you don't need to do and this is this. There can be nothing condescending about it. Right. You're going there because you will learn, not because you have anything to offer. They, you will learn. And I think if the next generation diaspora really want to change the way the idea of India, the idea of Indianness is propagated among their communities across the world, they have to take the effort of first changing their own experience of India. That's so well put. Um, and the reflection of being an Indian in the space that you occupy, I think needs to be a discourse that's constantly uh, re reflected upon. Um, to end things, sir, uh, my last two questions. There has been a lot of talk on social media and uh, within these groups about what's taking place in Tamil Nadu now. I did write, I did write a column about it recently. Okay. Uh, uh, it's a scroll column. You can you can read it. It's, it's too early to say anything mm -hmm. about either Mr. Rajinikanth or Mr. Kamala Hassan. Mm -hmm. uh, because, well, to Kamala Hassan's credit, in the last few months, I think he has raised some very important issues on governance and corruption. Mm -hmm. and, uh, that has to be definitely said. Uh, in Rajinikanth's case, I'm bewildered by the idea of spiritual politics. <laughs> uh, uh, I have no clue what that means, and I'd be surprised if he himself knows what he's talking about. Uh, but I must also say that uh, Mr. Kamala Hassan, we, um, you know, I heard his speech when he launched his party. Uh, there was not much said in it. Mm -hmm. So um, I don't really know what talking about what he's looking for um, uh, I, I you know I also think in both cases um, you cannot avoid social uh, hierarchy in your conversations and politics and until now both of them are, are not talking about it right um, I think corruption as a singular platform for electoral politics is not good enough right I don't think because it's a go-to issue. Yeah, corruption is not just about money. Mm -hmm. uh, corruption is about social construction, right. and if you're not going to reflect about gender and caste uh, in this discourse, I don't know where it's going. So that's my uh, apprehension vis-a-vis -vis Mr. Kamala Hassan and Rajinikanth, and I have a larger apprehension uh, as far as Tamil Nadu politics goes, <laughs> is that can't we look beyond Tinsel Tower right. and uh, uh, I mean, anybody has can come into politics, I know, but um, this whole uh, session we seem to have in terms of people to people from the world of cinema only in some way um, being larger than life in politics is, I think, something that we need to think about because I think uh, that is also says something about who we are as citizens of this country and as Tamil people. Um. Last question, looking beyond, um, and I'm sorry for my bluntness, but you've been blunt in this interview, but we do have the 2019 general elections. No, I honestly have never, um, I'm, I'm entirely political. I'll remain entirely political. I will not mince words. I will say what I feel. Mm -hmm. um, have I thought about being part of electoral politics? I have not. Mm -hmm. uh, I'm not considered it, but I'm smart enough not to be stupid to say never. Because <laughs> you never know what's going to happen. But I can tell you that as far as 2019 is concerned, uh, no, I've not been thought about politics since uh, in, the, in, the, in the coming future, though, no, I've not thought about electoral politics at all. I have a lot of things to do. 
All right. <laughs> Thank you so much for your candidness and your bluntness, uh, Krishna sir. And I hope soon that I'll have uh, the occasion to see you live at a concert. Um, I know you're playing at Cornell very soon, and I wish yes. you the best of luck. Uh, but thank, thank you, you so much for coming on to Basic Basic.